Welcome to VPG's Virtual Water Cooler Chat Podcast, where we share lessons and stories of women professionals to help empower other women and expand a greater circle of influence. So we walk our journey with those who understand and appreciate us. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Barrister Digital Solutions. Barrister Digital Solutions is a full-service litigation support company that has been supporting the legal community for over 20 years. With decades of experience serving a variety of clients, from corporate firms to nonprofits, BDS is the right extension for your legal team. Today, we are going to chat with Jennifer H. Wu on Virtual Water Cooler Chat's episode titled Building Your Own House. Jennifer is a founding partner at Groombridge, Wu, Bachman, and Stone, LLP, which she founded after seven years as a partner at Paul, Weiss, Rifkind, Wharton, and Garrison, LLP. She is a patent trial and appellate lawyer recognized for her great advocacy skills at trials and outstanding work in cutting-edge biologics cases. Jennifer has been widely recognized within the legal industry and the patent litigation bar for her achievements. In 2022, she was recognized by Chambers USA as an up-and-coming lawyer in the intellectual property patent New York category. In 2019, Jennifer was named to Benchmark Litigation's 40 and Under Hot List Northeast. In 2018, she was selected by the New York Law Journal as a rising star, an award that recognizes top attorneys under the age of 40. In 2017, Jennifer was a recipient of the Best Under 40 Award from the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association, NAPABA. She is a member of the Executive Committee and the Board of Federal Circuit Bar Association, FCBA, and a former co-chair of the FCBA Patent Litigation Committee, the Mock Argument Committee, and the Rules Committee. She received the FCBA's George Hutchinson Committee Award, recognizing committee leadership in 2016 and 2018. Check out our show notes to learn more about Jennifer. Good morning, Jennifer. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation to be on the virtual water cooler chat. How are you this morning? Good. Thank you, Ashley, for having me. We haven't had a water cooler in a long time, so it's nice to kind of go to a virtual chat. So, so nice. Well, that's actually one of the reasons why I call it a virtual water cooler chat, just during the pandemic. I was like, you know, I think that we could do, because there's an IP uh, cafe, the council cafe or something like that and then i was like well maybe for the wellness theme we should probably do something of virtual water cooler chat because people are probably missing that particular element of bonding within Mm -hmm. the office let's get started Mm -hmm. the very first thing that i wanted to ask you is can you describe the essence of jennifer wood i think what people have called me publicly is that of a racehorse. <laughs> and um, I don't know that that is how I thought of myself. Um, but I think that since I was a very young age, I think inherently, I always liked competition. And I think that's what people notice about me. And um, even when I was young, I visited Asia a lot because my parents are from Taiwan. So every summer I would go to Taiwan. And um, my parent, my father is from a very rural village in the south of Taiwan, Taidong. And it's a place where when I went, there were no paved roads. There were no uh, bathrooms that, as you can think of modern bathrooms, there was no plumbing. Um, And he came from a very poor family. And in a place like that, you might think that you can't find competition, 
but there's competition everywhere, whether it's throwing rocks or it's playing video games or it's just running in the street. And I think the fact that even when I was a young child visiting Taiwan, that I was out in the street, like trying to like beat up all the boys <laughs> in the local <laughs> village. Um, and I actually won a video game competition. I've never said that publicly, actually. Um, I won a video game competition in that little village where wow. basically there was like one TV and one like Nintendo set. And you were playing like Super Mario Brothers or Street Fighter. Um, and I was this like little kid from America who wasn't from there, but I would go there and I would just like sit there and like play video games with these little boys. Um, and they weren't even my cousins. They're just people in the village. Um, and I would win them. And my parents, I remember thinking, this is a very unusual child, right? <laughs> like this is a child who I think politely in America, we would say a child who needs challenges. Um, but impolitely, we would probably say a child who's very competitive. And I think that over time, I've grown to learn, you know, it's not that I didn't have friends, that I learned how to channel my competitiveness in a way that was constructive, rather than kind of this need to win, kind of overwhelming everything else. And the odd thing about it is that my parents growing up were not that competitive. <laughs> they didn't like go out and try to beat anybody. They were just middle class parents who were fine. Um, they weren't particularly like, we have to do X or Y. But as I grew up, I started and I learned more about their careers and their lives. Um, I realized that they are also both extremely competitive people. But when you're young, you don't you don't know that about them. And you also don't know it about yourself. So, you know, I think that even when we were young, we would kind of my sister and I would clamber up the set of stairs to my parents' home. And no matter what, I had to like get up first. I don't know why. And I have like these thought processes of like, if I just unbuckle my seatbelt first, I'm going to beat her up the stairs and like just finding ways to like, you know, basically get up the stairs first. And there was no prize. It was just for the point of being first in the door and be like, I won. And um, I remember, you know, kind of thinking at that time that like, there's a faster way to do this. And eventually I became a management consultant actually. And my entire job was to find faster ways to do things or to be more efficient. And it, it turned out that my even when I was young and thinking about how to do things more efficiently or faster was was came naturally to me. Um, and the, the funny thing about it is that I now I have three children. So they're currently six, seven and nine years old. And when we get up the elevator, we live in an apartment in New York. Um, and our 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 apartment is kind of the furthest one down the hallway. And when, as soon as we get the elevator, our kids are like, pushing each other out of the way oh. <laughs> the first one to get to the door and we have a dog and they're trying to like outrun the dog and my oh, husband's God. like no rushing no running stop and I'm just like you are who you are you have to be who you are in order to succeed <laughs> well I'm a little curious is your competitiveness like with yourself or with others you know when I was younger I think it was with myself and because I, my sister was four years younger because so like beating her was not very satisfying. So I, I was better than her at everything, right? Like I was four years older, right? Anything you want to say. Um, and as I got older, I, I think that um, when I was in high school, I had a set of good friends who were really, really good at things like good at math and good at science and good at writing. I became more competitive with my peers. And it wasn't that I didn't want them to succeed, but their level of you know, sort of being so good motivated me to want to be as good as them. And so I think it's a little bit of both. I, when people say like competing against others or against yourself, I think 
that, that's a more of a sports analogy, right? Like, are you on a playing field where you're competing against your opponent? Or are you somebody who individually just wants to be the best like marathon runner versus somebody who is playing in a football game and just really wants to beat the other team or a baseball game? And I think, but in real life, the reality is that um, you're simultaneously competing against other people and yourself at the same time. There's never really a moment where I think that I'm just competing against myself because my memory of myself is not good enough to realize what I did before. It's not like when, you know, professional athletes are running track. They know their previous time. They're trying to beat it. In life, we don't have those kinds of metrics, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I make an oral argument in court, I don't always think of it as the best one, right? What I do know is that people will tell me that's the best argument I've ever seen. And I'll say, oh, I, I think it was okay. Like I, it felt okay, but I, it's hard for people to see yourselves clearly um, unless you're on Zoom. Like on Zoom right now, I can see myself, but when I'm standing up in court, like I'm hearing the words that I'm saying, but I'm trying really hard to listen to the judge or talk to the jury. And in those circumstances, I'm not focused on my words because I've already, my brain has moved on to the next set of words. So I'm more focused on, trying to get the next word out. And then if I see myself on video, I don't remember all the things I said because I'm trying so hard to listen to the other person. So I think in, in life, it's a little different than kind of competition against other people or yourselves. The only way that I know that I am decent at what I do is when people reflect back at me, oh, I thought that was good. And then I think, okay, like that, then maybe it was okay because you understood it. And then sometimes, you know, I'll be like, that was great. And then people will be like, I don't understand that. And I was like, oh, okay, I didn't do a good job. So, you know, I think that you, you can't, you can't be too confident about your own assessment of yourself. But what I do know is that I have a great desire internally to always do better. It's just sort of like your, you know, a racehorse analogy is that like, you know, like the racehorse is running. Are they running for themselves just to finish so that they can get a drink of water? Or are they running against the other horses? It's hard to say, right? You don't really yeah. know. You just know that you're on a track and you're like, I was born to run. Unless you get into the horse's mind. <laughs> <laughs> I was born the year of the horse. And so oh. all over my parents' house are pictures of horses. Um, and, you know, and I, I guess like in some way, um, I'm Buddhist. So um, you believe in fate. So I very much believe in not fighting like who you are, like you can't really change who you are. Like my my parents, I think, hoped that I would be um, meek and patient and polite and just sort of sit back because that's the vision of sort of a good Asian American girl or even just a good Asian girl. And um, they thought that I would just be very, you know, by the rules and by the book. And I'm not. And I think that in some ways that's that's been good for me. But there's a lot of sort of struggle between what I thought they wanted me to be or what society wanted me to be and who I actually am. And so I think in Asian American households and even, you know, in everyone's households, even as a young girl, you're always trying to figure out who you are because you so badly want to be the person that other people want you to be. But sometimes that's not who you are. <laughs> yes. And sometimes you have to be like, when you're being yourself, you have to think about your parents, like, you know, saving faith, humanity and all these things. And so definitely have, uh, it, I mean, some of my Asian American friends, when we were growing up, we definitely have that struggle. You know, it's like, yeah. this I mean, is my... what we want to be, you know, and then the parents like, no, you don't do that. 
yeah, I think it's just, it's, it's like disapproval just in their faith. We learn to read. They don't ever say like, I don't want you to do something, but it's just, you know, a look. Like my Chinese name means white silk. That is as far from a racehorse as you can imagine, right? It's a beautiful piece of white silk just floating in the wind. Tranquility. There you go, just run. <laughs> be admired and just beautiful. And I think that like, you know, I'm very lucky that I grew up in America. And I remember my parents saying to me that in America, they value that you have a voice, but in Asia, they would not have valued your voice. <laughs> They'll crush you down. <laughs> the little pieces of sand. Right? And I, I never understood that really, but I, I now appreciate it. And I think that more than anything, I think immigrants and immigrant children ha have resilience. That's idea that, um, you know, if you fall down, you can get up. You know, and I think that, you know, mo a lot of people when they when they need, you know, meet me and look at my resume, they think that I have the resume of someone who has always been successful. Right. I went to Harvard um, and I went to Harvard at the age of 16. I went wow. to law school. Um, I was like a, you know, sort of prodigy child in some ways um, and when it came to academics. Um, I was naturally good at some sports. Like I was on the fencing team. I was a varsity fencer at Harvard. Like things came naturally to me that perhaps like didn't come as naturally to other people, including like just moving very quickly and just grasping ideas very quickly, like understanding people. An example would be, you know, I didn't speak English till I was six years old. I learned English in American school, but my parents only spoke Chinese to me, but I picked it up very quickly, right? <laughs> like it was no problem. <laughs> I was able to figure it out, right? So I, I think people think that, but when I think back to my childhood, it's not the successes I remember. It's definitely like all the times that I failed and how to get up from that. And so it's, again, a perception versus reality. Like when I think of myself, I think of all the things that I have done wrong and how I was able to come back from that. And then when people look at me, they think, oh, this is somebody who's just kind of coasted and been able to achieve things that she wants. And I'm just like, that's not true. Like I can think of all the reasons why that's not true, <laughs> right? But, you know, I think that's just, again, the difference in perception and reality. Can you share with us, how did you choose your path or your journey to become a patent attorney? And do you think that this is sort of like the right path? Um, the way I became a patent lawyer uh, actually starts with my volunteer experience at the hospital where I was born in New Jersey. I was a volunteer there as a candy striper discharging people. And the person managing all the candy stripers was a patent uh, lawyer uh, partner, actually, at a, at a law firm in New York, a boutique that no longer exists, Morgan and Finnegan. And um, my first summer in college, I was still volunteering with her on Saturdays. And um, my job at the horse farm um, that I was working at was a research farm was to basically take the temperature of horses um, that were being given basically human you know, drugs um, to see if whether they could work in horses at different doses. So the job that I was doing was to measure temperature of horses really through the tail. And when she heard that I was being paid $8 an hour, she offered to double my pay the next summer if I would become a paralegal with her. Um, and I then accepted the job the next summer, my sophomore year. And um, it turned out she had a trial that summer. So I went to LA and helped her try a case in uh, in, in Los Angeles. Um, I was only 17 years old and I couldn't drink and I couldn't drive really. And um, it was an eye-opening experience, but everyone was really friendly. The lead trial lawyer for our client was John Kecker. So I got to see really high quality uh, lawyering. And um, I was doing things like literally physically date stamping things, but it gave me a perspective um, on sort of patent law that I'd never had. 
even though I had this experience, I wasn't committed to being a patent lawyer. So what happened was that I applied to law school. Um, I was biochem, so I was actually pre-med. I applied to law school and I got into NYU and other schools, um, but I deferred my admission because I became a healthcare consultant for two years. And um, I'm just so grateful that I did that because um, the woman I worked for when I was a healthcare consultant is now the first woman head of a major hospital system in New York City, which is Mount Sinai. And it really gave me a perspective on women leadership um, because there's so many women in that healthcare consulting company and I'm still in touch with them. And they really gave me a sense of leadership as well as client services. And so when people ask me about my journey to becoming a patent lawyer, I would say that other people saw in me that I was a patent lawyer, but I did not see that in myself. And the reason I became a patent lawyer is that I trusted that other people knew me better than I knew myself that I trusted that the woman who was a patent lawyer thought I could be a good paralegal. I trusted that um, the management consultant woman who I worked with thought that I could talk to boards of companies and that would trust me to lead meetings. And ultimately, I I, I think I trusted myself that I could become a litigator and a patent lawyer. When I first started in law school, I was convinced that I was going to be a corporate lawyer because I had been a management consultant. And everybody thought this would be a good fit for me. I would basically do corporate law in the healthcare space. And so I actually spent my first summer um, in California in the IP transactional group. And then my second summer, I spent doing litigation at Wild Gotchel in New York. And I met a woman who um, was in law school, but a different law school than NYU. And it turned out that the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association, NAPAVA, was sponsoring a moot court where if you won your regionals, you could go to Hawaii. And Hawaii for a lot of like Asian Americans is like the dream state because you go and you eat shaved ice and you go to the beach and everyone's Asian and you finally feel like you're at home, right? Hawaii is, is sort of the dream. And every other year the convention had been held. It had never been held in Hawaii that I could have remembered. Every time it was always like Philadelphia or Atlanta or California. But because it was in Hawaii, the two of us thought we should compete because if we win this competition, um, we get to go to Hawaii, (laughs) a free trip. And so we competed with zero moot court experience that fall after our 2L summer, and we won the competition um, with no training. (laughs) And we just won it. And the judges in the final round included judges, you know, kind of judges from the federal courts as well as state courts. And they became our mentors. They said, oh, you two ladies are very talented. You should become litigators. And I thought, oh, I don't I don't know. But if you think so, then I, you know, I have faith that you know what you're doing, even if I don't have faith in me. So I then thought, well, maybe I should then consider clerking. I never until that moment considered clerking. So um, then my 3L, when I go to law school, I applied for clerkships because I've been, I just won this moot court competition. And all of a sudden my path as a, corporate healthcare, you know, sort of transactional lawyer was going to become a patent litigator maybe instead. So I applied to the Fed circuit and, you know, credit to all of my professors who called in. I got interviews with almost every judge and I ended up clerking for Judge Lori at the federal circuit who had a profound impact on me um, because I consider him the father of modern patent law and kind of taking the mantle of, um, Judge Rich. And I think that, you know, that that experience was was amazing. So when you people ask, like, how did you decide to become a patent lawyer? I don't think I decided. I think other people 
thought that I would be a really good patent lawyer, starting with the woman who was the head of the volunteer program, Andrea Weda, who was at Morgan and Finnegan at the time. She, she looked at me and she said, you should consider patent law. And I was like, I don't know what patent law is. And I remember asking my parents um, what patent law was when I was that age. And they said, oh, they're the people who make you sign two signatures on every notebook. It makes you stay late at work. <laughs> and I thought, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Sometimes until midnight. <laughs> so you can have corroboration, which is really important, as I understand now, for inventorship. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so now that leads us to the next question of the topic uh, the title of this episode, Build Your Own House. Want to talk about that? Yes. So, um, you know, I think going back to the horse theme, like if depending on who you are, where you live will maybe different, right? I'm, I'm the kind of person who, when I see something that's inefficient or broken, I have a tendency to want to fix it. If I see something that is not right, I want to take action to make it better. And that comes from this personality of saying, like, I can do anything. And I give a lot of credit to my parents for raising me to believe that I can change the world. I don't know why they thought I could change the world, but they always had confidence. They're like, Jennifer, if you wanted to change the world, you could do that. And I they, they I think they just said that. I don't think they knew that. Um, but I always had this confidence that if something was wrong, that I could fix it. And one of the best things about building your own house is that if you see something that's not right, you can fix it immediately. And there's no real bureaucracy that you're not confronted with the history of, you know, 100 years of a law firm saying this is how I do things. So we will do it this way going forward. If there's inequity, if there's injustice, if there's just inefficiency, um, you can you can build your own house. Um, that being said, I never thought I would build my own law firm. OK, this came as a surprise. It's a surprise to me that I'm a patent lawyer. Right. It's It, it was a surprise to me that I became a partner at a big law firm, and I have nothing but respect for Paul Weiss. Um, but I remember when uh, I was told that I was going to be put up for partner, and I and I just had my first child the previous year, and I said to them, "Oh, that's okay. I don't I don't want to be partner." <laughs> They're like, "Why don't you want to be partner?" I was like, "I've never thought that I should belong to people who look like you, because the people <laughs> who were talking to me were not people who looked like me." Oh, I was wow. the fourth ever Asian American partner to be promoted at Paul Weiss in litigation. And there were others, but they were not necessarily ones who I thought were particularly joyful about their job. And I wasn't sure when I looked up at the partnership that I belong there or that I'd be happy there. And I, I kind of was unsure that, that it was worth it. So I remember they were very confused because nobody gets offered partnership at Paul Weiss and turns it down, right? And so they had a, a, a white male partner who I, who I love dearly um, take me out to lunch at an Indian buffet. And I'll never forget because it was it was very strange. And they had this conversation of like, what makes you happy, Jen? What is the essence of you? Right. And I was just like, boy, it's like Indian food is like really good. Why have I always been eating at my desk in the cafeteria? Right. <laughs> Thinking, is this what partners do to eat Indian buffet? And he was like, I was like, and I literally, I think I responded, do you come here often? Like, do the partners eat onion buffet? And he was like, yes, we go here often. <laughs> I was like, oh, I just never knew that. Right? And then eventually we came to, I, they said, well, why don't you want to be a partner? And I said, look, I don't think I can work harder than I worked, you know, as an associate. I, I just can't. 
Um, I, you know, I worked harder for you than I've worked for anyone in my life. And I just had my first child and I'm not sure that I can do this for the rest of my life. And I really respect the fact that you, you know, want to give me, you know, more pay and position. And I'm very appreciative, but I know there's a lot of other people who want this a lot more than me. I don't know that I want this that much. And he said, well, think of it as a reward for your past performance and not as some, I promise you, you won't have to do more work. And I was like, I don't think you can make that promise, but I will try to see that. And eventually I, I did become partner and it was it was better than being an associate. But I just couldn't see that because when I looked up at the partner class, um, you know, for better or for worse in big law, the partner class is at most, you know, the partnership or not partner class, but the partnership is at most 25 percent women. That's not very many. And at the senior levels where people who are running the firm, it's not you know, you're, you're hard pressed to find women like in, in sort of the the numbers you find in society, which is at least 50, 50. And in addition, being somebody of color, I didn't really see like people like me there. And I just wasn't sure where I belonged. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think that that's, that's why representation matters. The fact that I was somebody who was very successful as an associate. And yet when they offered me partner, I wasn't sure if I wanted it should basically be an indication that we're not doing enough to inspire people who look like me to really commit, you know, their lives to this, that they're not sure this is what they want. And so this brings me back to building our own house. Our partnership at Groombridge Woo is 50% women. We are a woman-owned law firm. And that is an incredible <laughs> point of pride for me. And it is so important to me because um, when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, Diversity is like inviting someone to a dance. Including is asking someone to a dance or asking someone to dance. And equity is allowing you to play your own playlist. And so many of us who are people of color or women have diversity inclusion. We're always dancing, we're good dancers, we're always invited, the firms are welcoming to us. But when it comes to the music that is being played, we are not playing the music. We are not the ones who are choosing what the music is. And I think all of you, everyone understands this, but when you go to a concert, the music that's being played is really important to your enjoyment of that concert. It's not about whether you can dance. I'm a good dancer. I mean, I'm good at law, I should say, right? You know, whatever it is, right? I'm good at like when people invite me, giving a big smile and saying, thank you so much. I'm really excited. I'm enthusiastic. I'm good at dancing. But if you're at a concert where the music is not yours, at some level, it affects your enjoyment of that concert, right? So say like you're a big fan of country music and someone takes you to a heavy metal rock concert. You might feel really pleased that the, you know, the head partner is inviting you to a heavy metal concert and you're going to be able to, you know, kind of bang your head with everybody else. And, you know, you're included and boy, aren't you lucky to be here. But if you're a country music fan, wouldn't it be great if at least once you could play your own music and you could take everyone else to a country music concert? So to me, at least, you know, building your own house is about letting everybody play their own music and not imposing, you know, that on anyone else. And I think that it's hard to tell when you're a partner, whether or not an associate likes your music because they want to please you. Oh, it's great. I love it. Thank you so much for the invitation. But if we want real equity, then we have to make sure that the partnerships are fully women owned or at least 50, right? Like just less than 50, 50. And also same with people of color. We have to make sure that we have people of color in significant numbers. So in our equity partnership of the six partners, two are Asian women. And that that's significant 
that's significant to the decisions we make, to how we feel and how empowered we are. But it's also, in my view, significant to whether people want to join um, you know, a partnership like this. I can't imagine a world in which my kids grow up and they are the only person of color in their classroom. I can't imagine a world in which my daughters, I have two daughters, whether, you know, I have three kids, but two are daughters. I can't imagine a world in which my two daughters grow up and not 50% of their kind of colleagues at work are women. But that is the world of law firms. Big law is not, you know, there is no equality in terms of numbers when it comes to gender or people of color. And I think for so long, you know, you know I've been practicing law for nearly 20 years now, um, for so long, I just accepted that that was the way of the world. And so building our own house has been so meaningful to me in terms of creating real equity for women and people of color. I mean, I could not agree with you more. And that's one of the reasons why I actually built my own house, like VPG. So when I left to do my, um, to start my own consultancy, it's mostly because in 2017, my dad uh, passed. And um, it was sort of like he was gone within four hours. And I continued to just work and work and uh, litigation hours. I'm kind of pretty much a workaholic most of my life. And then eventually I was really drained. And I just could not see myself continue doing what I have been doing. So at some point, I realized that I do agree with you that sometimes we don't necessarily know how we come to where we are. That might have to do with like, I mean, in the Western world, serendipity, but, you know, when you talk about Buddhism, like my grandma was Buddhist. So that actually has a lot to do with it, because when I first started, I was like, okay, I'm kind of done with, big, you know, big law. I wanted to go in my basement, do my own thing. I could say no to people when I want to. Oh, my God, that is such a powerful statement. And I understand that, you know, we have to say yes to opportunities, but sometimes certain opportunities are not always best for you. That's you right. know, It's funny because I, you're right. Like Buddhism, ha- you know, happiness in Buddhism is... Um, you don't get happiness by getting what you want. You have happiness by not wanting anything. But yet, like so many of us, even for Buddhists, say yes to everything. So as an associate, I didn't turn down a single assignment. I said yes to everything. It didn't matter what it was. Big smile. Of course, I'll happy to help. And it's funny that the moment that broke me was when they asked me if I wanted to be partner. And I said, no. Right. It's like I had come just like you had come all this way to the top of the heap and I'd been this person who had always said yes. But when they asked me to be partner and I envisioned it as a big role where I had to do a lot more, even if it came with more money, I didn't I didn't want the money. I didn't need the money at some level because I didn't live a life that would require that kind of money. And I just said, no. Now, I will tell you that I'm glad that I became a partner because it turns out that there's a lot of networking that goes on among the partners that I didn't know happened. Right. And I I just wasn't aware of it. No one ever talked about it with me. And I'm the, you know, I'm the first lawyer in my family. And for people like that, you don't have a vision of what partnership should be like. I didn't grow up around partners and even the partners I knew, I didn't know what they did on weekends. You know, I didn't know how they spent their money. <laughs> like um, as far as I could tell, and this is generational, they didn't spend very much time with their families. And I remember that just that previous year, I was pregnant. And I went up to a woman partner, the only other woman partner in my group. And I said, um, I was an associate and I said, you know, I'm pregnant. I'm, 
you know, having my first child, you know, please give me advice. And she said, you need to hire two nannies. You'll never see your kids during the weekdays. Um, you know, I came back from my, you know, first child and two weeks later I was at trial and I was just like, oh my gosh. And, and it wasn't her. I went and talked to other women partners at the firm and they said the same thing. Every woman partner who had had kids, you know, my, my, in the older generation to me, were basically making partner because they acted like a man. They didn't take a single day off, right? They just, two weeks later after delivering a child, they just came right back. And I don't, I don't blame the firm for that. It was just what was done, right? And I remember, so after I had my first child, I just said, it's not motivating to me to want to be that person. Because when they told me, I was scared. <laughs> and so I remember when I came back from my first parental leave and um, someone said, I need to have a call at six o'clock. And I emailed right back to 50 lawyers. I can't have a call at six o'clock. That's daycare pickup. And I mean, I drew a line in the sand at that point of saying no. And so because I had been empowered to say no, because I had become a mother, I think when they said, do you want to be partner? I was like, no. <laughs> I was like, this seems like more meetings and more work. And I don't need that in my life. I'm a paralegal. I've supported patent attorneys for over 22 years. And construction attorneys for maybe about three years. Kind of like interesting switch. My company actually started around like three and a half years, almost 3.4 years ago. And when I first started, it was like the vision was like really small. Actually, I don't know that I really have that much of a vision. It's dramatically changed. And I have like my own team and it's building to like some people was like, what exactly do you do? Even my family was like, what exactly do you do? Because we cannot figure that out. I was like, it's whatever I want. Which is one of the best things about building your own house, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I could say no to people. I could I mean there were people that asked me like, would you like to come work for us? I'm like, no, not so tough, but you can hire me as a consultant. And you cannot do that at that law firm. I wish I had done it earlier, right? I wish I had done it earlier because I didn't realize how much freedom I was lacking until we did it. And now I realize it's a lot more responsibility, right? Because you have to take care of everyone, but it's it's a lot more fun. But then the thing that I'm thinking is that because a lot of people was like, oh, you know, you just have like such crazy litigation hours. You should have done this a long time ago. But I honestly, I don't know that it would have been the same experience. I think timing is so important. And maybe I just wasn't ready. Like life has not pushed me that way. And so some of the times, like when people come and basically invited you to join them or do whatever, it was like, and there were people calling me and say, we'd like to acquire you. I say, sorry, I'm not ready for you yet. Timing is everything. I agree. Timing, timing is everything. Is everything. I like said, maybe when I'm getting close to retirement, now you could come to talk to me about acquisition, but I'm not ready for you yet. <laughs> and, and timing is everything. And so I think you asked me earlier what my essence was. And I said, race force. The essence of my husband is jellyfish. He is like the person who kind of floats around and then he doesn't sting anyone. And he's just like really nice. He's a jellyfish dad. He's definitely not a tiger mom. He's a jellyfish dad. Um, but I think that, you know, in the same way that when I met my husband, um, I, you know, in earlier in life, I don't think I would have wanted a jellyfish person. But when I met him, I was like having a crazy life, which I was like an associate. It's like traveling everywhere. I was like doing a lot of work. It was really nice to have someone who's so stable, who's always there. Right. So I think that, you know, life is funny and that you don't always know what you want because you don't know what your life is going to be like. And for so many of us who own our own house, like the biggest challenge that you face is like decision fatigue. Because because it's your own house, you have to design it. 
Like, what does the roof look like? What does the door look like? You know, do I have security around the door? You know, what email system do I use, right? So there's a lot of decisions to be made. And so anytime you can let go and not make as many decisions, you feel very joyful about it and think like, just like this podcast makes me very feel very joyful because you're choosing what questions to ask and I just have to answer them. That feels very relaxing. <laughs> a couple of things that I wanted to sort of like talk about. And one is to, uh, I watched your March 23rd, testimonies to get the uh, federal response to anti-Asian uh, racism. And that is something that as Nation American, I do want to thank you for speaking up and giving people a voice. Um, it's a very concerning topic. And so I do want to at least address, I watched your um, clip on LinkedIn, and then I went on to watch the like the overall testimony, and they have a, uh, I think we have one month comment period. So I'm probably going to make some, um, I'm going to submit comment. <laughs> I hope you do. I hope you do. It's so important. So this is a topic that's really important to me, which is Asian Americans in America. It, racism against Asian Americans is as old as America itself since the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, but I think because Asians are perceived as model minorities, the idea that we are somehow facing racism in America is not is not a concept that a lot of people understand. When I was at my previous law firm, I was asked by more than one partner whether Asians are really minorities, whether I consider myself a minority. And I do. I do because I faced racism. And I think that in, in 2020, starting with the pandemic, when the former president started calling it the China virus, um, you know, especially in New York City, anti-Asian racism and violence exploded. And at that time, I really felt like I needed to do something because everything, everyone that was getting hurt in the streets, they were just like my own parents. They were just like my own sister. They're just like, you know, kind of my cousins and my family. And I could tell that there was no one really stepping up to help the victims. There was a lot of news media. And I got a call from an elected official who said, um, some of the community leaders are taking money from the victims from their GoFundMe in order to help them to provide translation services, to give legal advice. And they said, because you're, you know, you're an Asian American partner at a big law firm, we believe that you won't be taking money from people. And I said, correct. I don't, I don't want their money and I won't be taking their money. And they said, well, you represent them pro bono. And so again, I didn't, I didn't reach out to any victims. I've, I've never reached out to a single victim in New York City of anti-Asian hate. All of the cases that we handle, which is every person who's died in New York City of anti-Asian violence, have been calls to me directly, almost all of them. And some of them come in from elected officials. Some of them come from the news media. Others come in from NYPD. Um, the Hate Crimes Task Force will call me directly. And the reason that they call is because they know that we will help them for free and we'll do the right thing. We're not seeking attention. We're not seeking media. We're not going to be out in the press. We're not going to take any of their money. But our only goal there is to say for people who have been victimized by anti-Asian hate, we stand with you. We think this is unacceptable. And we think that we, we as a community should help you. But we personally will spend our own money hiring translators. We will spend our own money um, providing pro bono services because it is, frankly, the right thing to do. And I think that working on these cases has really made me realize how connected we are. Every client that I've ever worked with who's a victim, whether it's Michelle Goh's family, the woman pushed in the subway, or Guang Ma, who's the grandmother who's beaten, or um, Ziwen Yang's widow, who was the 
the, the person making a delivery in Forest Hills who was shot in a scooter. Um, I have hugged them. I have cried with them. And they are absolutely the same as you and me, 100%. And I think that walking into this, some a lot of people um, who are not, you know, kind of have never done this kind of pro bono service, they will say to me, you're a big firm lawyer. <laughs> I know at the time I started this. And how do you connect with people like that? And you can't not cry with them when you see them. You know, they love, they feel, they eat, all of them. And it's not about sort of class or money or anything else. It's about the fact that we all live in New York City and we should take care of each other, right? We, we're all the same. Like the, the people who got beaten, the people who got shoved, that could have been me. Could have been any of us, right? And so it's been it's been heartwarming to work with them. It's been challenging to work with kind of institutions and communities, right? We're sometimes at odds with the district attorneys, although not always. Um, I think Hannah Yu of the Manhattan DA's office, Asian American woman running the hate crimes unit, chief of hate crimes unit in Manhattan DA's office and doing a phenomenal job. Um, but she's probably the only Asian American district attorney, kind of assistant district attorney that I've met in, in our work in the last two years. And even in Queens, where you have large Asian American population, when you go to the DA's office, one of the things that happened was we go in with, a, you know, with um, Zewen Yang's widow. This is the one, the man who shot off the scooter. We meet with the assistant district attorney, and she, for the first time, she brings a translator who is a detective, who she says speaks Mandarin. When we get there, it becomes clear he he basically speaks Cantonese, and his translation isn't even correct in his Cantonese. So we end up then translating for, for them. But the fact that this could happen in Queens, that when the Asian person is hurt in Queens, that we don't even have a good Mandarin translator and that in the law enforcement, that's not gonna inspire people to come forward and report these crimes. And so one of the reasons we do this is that we recognize that the system has not been set up to basically help Asian American victims, particularly if you don't speak the language, particularly if you don't speak the language. So we will bring a translator with us, or we, or I speak Mandarin, so I can translate if needed. Um, and it's it's very gratifying, but it's also the reason we do it is because there are problems in society. If there is no anti-Asian hate attacks, I would rather never take a case like this again. If every time I went to the DA, there was a competent translator, I feel like I would not need to go. I don't need to spend my time on that. But the reason we keep doing this kind of work, and we just recently picked up the representation of the woman who was beaten in Queens in Corona, where she was in a car and um, she got spat on and got caught, called racial epithets. I think no, there's been a no indictment yet. But the reason we do this is because there isn't always a push forward and they don't know how to get justice. And that's what we're here for is to say, the American system will give you justice, but you have to know what to do. And our process in the criminal justice system is set up so that for a year after the indictment comes down, um, it's all about defendants' rights. It's all about the defendant saying how they should, they're not guilty and that they have all these rights. And that's very frustrating for the victim who maybe has no money, uh, maybe not immigration status, um, maybe is scared to be in their house, and maybe doesn't even have health care. So we have to do better, I think, because um, the fact that anti-Asian hate exists is a problem we need to confront. But the fact that we have victims too, and there has been, in my view, zero federal response. Nobody other than Grace Mang has reached out to any of the victims we represent um, to talk to them. Michelle Goh's family, for example, they did not get a call from anyone in the federal government in the executive branch to say how, how horrified they were. I know there's outrage in the Asian community, but where is the federal response um, when Asian Americans are being killed?
Thank you for doing that. Very much appreciated. Now let's get onto a lighter subject. <laughs> How do you balance between your heavy patent litigation, fighting for civil rights, and being a mom of three young children and maintaining your mental fitness? What does Jennifer Wood do? Yeah, so I... um. This will not be a popular view, but my approach is to not make decisions unless I have to. So, for example, I'll give you an example. It's like if you have to decide where to go on vacation, if you decide a year in advance, but what if it's raining in the place you decide to go, right? The closer in time to the thing you have to do that you make a decision, the more accurate decision the decision will be because you have more information. So if I say I want to go to Peru next year. I don't know if there's going to be, you know, Peru will be open to me. What if there's a pandemic? I don't know if the weather will be good. So part of how I manage my life, which is different than a lot of mothers, is to not make decisions until I have to. So for example, this week actually is Passover and Easter, and my kids have Thursday and Friday off. And I just decided last night that I'm going to take them to Philadelphia and I'm going to make hotel reservations. I haven't yet. I will. <laughs> and we're going to leave tomorrow. So um, part of my my sort of, you know, in, you know, trying to make my life kind of, you know, just get time back is to not really overthink my decisions and to trust myself and trust my instincts. And that's a really hard thing because we're, we're we're trained as lawyers to be over analytical, to think through all the problems. I'm trained as a consultant to look at the pros and cons and make a chart and see which one is good or bad. But I have learned in life that I have to trust my own judgment. And if I'm wrong, I will learn from it. I can't be hard on myself and spend four weeks thinking about what to do and then be like, I should have spent another week or so I would have gotten it right. No, I have to go with my gut instinct. And then if I'm wrong, then I will learn from that and just try to be kind to myself that I'm never going to get it right all the time. So, so the way that's applied in the practice of law is that I don't use notes when I speak. I don't have a prepared script. When you heard me testify before the U.S. Commission for Civil Rights, I did not have a script. Every other person there had a written set of remarks. I was the only one without a script. And the reason that I did not have a script was because we were in the middle of spring break. And I drove from Vermont to New York and then took a train with my three kids to arrive in D.C. so I could testify before the commission. And the commission had only called me two weeks in advance, approximately, to tell me I was going to do this. So while I was test, you know, while I was preparing for the testimony, I was taking care of my three children who are on spring break and had no school, and we don't have a nanny. So, you know, I think that I was short on time. So I arrived to the US Commission for Civil Rights and I just told them the things that I thought that they needed to hear. And I spoke from my heart. This is a really hard concept for most young lawyers and even anybody in any profession to understand that if you speak from a script, it's a crutch. I have, since I was a young lawyer and with credit to my mentors for telling me not to speak from a script, if you don't speak from a script, you will become better at public speaking. If you're used to looking at a script, you will not, you will always need that script. And this is important for Asian Americans. When I was a first year associate, I they do a program where they videotape Asian Americans and they have someone outside the firm tell you how you're perceived, because how you're perceived by judges and juries can be important to your career. And I was told that when I spoke with notes, that 
the jury and the judge might think that I did not speak English. And that is why I needed notes. And so I took that to heart. The law firm didn't tell me that. It was a woman consultant who came in who, who told me that. And I think that's really important that when I walk into a courtroom, there are people there who think I do not speak English. So if I show up with a big stack of notes and I'm reading from it, they might think that somebody else wrote that those notes for me and that I am just reading them because I do not speak English. And I think that not having notes, not having a script means you have the flexibility to change your plan anytime. So for example, at the US Commission for Civil Rights, um, I was not aware of this, but my three of the other speakers on my panel were very esteemed and very good lawyers said that the biggest problem facing Asians in America regarding racism was affirmative action. I did not know that they were going to say that. But because I didn't have a script when they said that, I was able to respond that I felt that that was incorrect because there are people dying in the streets of New York City. And I thought that was a bigger problem than people not getting into specialized high schools. Right. And we can we can agree or disagree about that. But when you don't have a script, your words will resonate because they're actually responsive to what people are saying. And then here's another point, which is when listeners are listening to people speak, they're not reading it. They're listening it to it. So if you have a script, you can't listen to yourself. But when you're speaking, you can at least hear yourself speak. So I, my biggest piece of advice to young associates is not, never to use a script. And I don't care if you forget to make a point. And I don't care always if you, you know, don't say it perfectly. That's the process of learning. But I would like to train people to not use a script. And that goes for parenting. That goes for civil rights work. You know, when I give my press conferences and my civil rights work, I don't have a script there either. I don't even have talking points. It's all in my head. Um, and if you do it enough, I think that it's, it, it's basically like taking out of, um, you know, your your daily workday, all the preparation work that you would have spent. Like I spent, when I was preparing for U.S. Commission for Civil Rights, we took an Excel, or no, it was an Excel, it was a Northeast Regional train down. And it was train took about three hours. I spent that three hours watching my children color and thinking about what I was going to say. But I didn't type it out. I just thought about what I would say. And I kind of, you know, I, I just, you know, was was just thinking about it. And if you can do your work while you're on a train with three young kids coloring, that that then is a win because you can do both at the same time. But if you're if you have to be in a quiet office and you have to type it out and you have to shut your kids out, I don't think that the balance is going to be there. In, in my apartment, we don't have a home office. I just work at the dining table and my kids are just like circling around me. <laughs> so I think part of you know the way in which I maintain balance is by ironically, just never really separating work from family life or pro bono work. So in the middle of the workday, if my pro bono client calls and this happens, even if, you know, I don't, I'm in a meeting with, you know, a, a patent litigation client, I'll pick up the phone. It's all in, right? Like you don't distinguish if my kids call, I pick up the phone too, right? So I, I try not to segment my day into um, work versus family versus civil rights work. It's just my day is my day. And if people need me, they can always call me. So that's about like efficiency, right? That's like, how do I create time for work and everything else? And a lot of people say, I don't know how you find the time. And I always say like, you know, basically if you're if you're a lawyer and I think you would understand this, Ashley, because you're a paralegal, you know, most lawyers have deposition outlines, right? They have an outline and they read it. Like when I take a deposition, there's no outlines. I have a stack of documents. and so then, in your head. 
<laughs> well, sometimes when someone's answering a question, I'm reading the next document, right? Um, I try to do it, you know, and the more you push yourself, the better you get at it, right? So that's on time management. And then in terms of mental health, I'm, I've just, it's the practice of meditation and letting go. If there's something that is bothering me, if I feel angry or emotionally upset, something or upset, I don't know if anger is the right word, but just upset or feel like there's something wrong. I don't just like go tell someone I don't seek therapy. And I think this is personal, right? A lot of people say, I need to go talk to my therapist or I need to go talk to someone and just let it out. And once you talk about it, it'll be better. My experience has been that sometimes when you talk it out, it makes you more upset. (laughs) And then you've lost three hours of your day (laughs) to talking about it. So I am pro just telling your feelings. But for me, um, what helps me is taking my feelings and thinking about why I have those feelings and seeing whether I can let go of those feelings. And then when I'm no longer upset, I find it's easier for me to be more rational about the situation and to think about the solution, whatever it is I'm upset about, right? And for example, um, in my last trial, uh, the lead counsel made it a big point that my client was Indian. And then they, they did a cross-examination where every time they came to an Indian name, they're like, this was emails written by Mr. Gupta. How do you pronounce Mr. Gupta? Is he from India? He's in India, right? They said the word India 40 times in that cross-examination, 40 times. Clearly wanting to convey to the juror that if you're Indian, that somehow there's something wrong with you, right? And that made me very upset, as you can imagine. But instead of complaining about it, instead of sort of whining to people about it, I I, I took, you know, it, it took a day just to think about it and just to like, just to be with my thoughts on it. And ultimately, we saw a curative instruction from the judge, and we got it. The judge granted the motion to to tell the jury that the fact that the client is in India does not matter to the resolution of the patent issues. Um, but it was at the at the moment it was very emotional because I felt like this was racism in the courtroom, and it was, it was, and it was deliberate. You could tell it was deliberate, right? And they might pretend to say, "Well, I think the other side said, well, it, your client's in India. That's a fact. Yeah, that's a fact, but it's not relevant." You don't need to repeat it 40 times. <laughs> you don't need to say 40 times. Every time you come to the name Gupta, why do you have to say, how do you pronounce Gupta? Mm. Right? If you say it a couple times, 10 times, you know, it's fine. 40 times, that's a lot. That's a lot, right? So, you know, I think you will always, I think the message is just that mental health for me, you know, relates to the practice of letting go. We cannot ever escape anti-Asian racism and prejudice and stereotypes whether we are in the courtroom or we are on the streets of New York, this is a fact of life. And when we face injustice and we face inequity, that is extremely stressful to all of us because it, it's unfair. And we're we're designed to want fairness, right? We want life to be fair. And so for me, the biggest challenge of mental health is just trying to let go of the feelings of unfairness and then thinking of how I can get a solution within the constructs that I'm in And then in terms of mental health, when it comes to kids and family and everything like that, I think the the easiest thing to do is just to not blame yourself for things that go wrong. So if my kid does something bad at school, I can't blame myself that it's my fault in any way, right? Like you have to let people fail and you have to let yourself fail and be kind to yourself. Otherwise, you'll spend all night thinking about all the things you could have done better. So for me, at least... I wish the one thing I wish I could teach lawyers, young lawyers, is one, take more risks. Don't be afraid to fail. And then two, to just have more confidence to speak up that even if you say something that's wrong, it's okay. 
just practice just talking without writing it down, without studying it, without having a script. I think that is so relevant and so few people would actually have the courage to come out and said that, you know, this is what's needed. So I do applaud you for actually sharing that because I actually, when I do my own training, like on-demand video, I have practiced with notes versus without notes. With a script, I would sound so robotic. Mm-hmm. And then at some point I just decided, you know, I'm just going to hit record button and just let it go. Whatever happens, I have 20 some years of paralegal experience. So I might have an outline. I, I will have an outline. So because otherwise I'll just meander off the topics. I can't really do that part yet. But overall, the outline will be sufficient for me to kind of stay on the topic, stay within the hour. And that's that. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer, for your time today. Congratulations on starting a new firm. And Woodbridge will Baldwin and Stone. And then also for all the work that you are doing to help Asian Americans to give all of us a voice. Very wow. meaningful work. So I really do want to thank you. Thank you, Ashley. And thank you for doing this and building your own house. Um, I'm just very excited about it. And I'll just say one last thing, which is um, one of the things that I noticed about you from the beginning was that you always behaved like an owner. Right. And that's so rare in the Asian community. I know you are an owner, but not everyone walks in like an owner. Right. And I just want to applaud you for just having that presence and also just, you know, just like having such light and shedding, shining such light in sort of the community. One of the analogies they often give people when they ask me what it takes to be successful is that my friend actually owns Chinatown Ice Cream Factory in Chinatown. You may have been there. It's a great ice cream factory. But every summer she hires interns, college students and high school students to help her scoop the ice cream. And some people walk in and they say, okay, how many hours do you want me to scoop? And um, yes, I can do the job. And other people walk in and they walk in like owners. They say, you need more chocolate than vanilla. You need more sprinkle cones, right? And I would just, you know, if I could give one piece of advice to people who are starting out in their careers is to always walk into the house, even if you didn't build it, always walk in as if you're the owner. Always behave from the very beginning, like you own the place and that you want to make changes. And if you can do that, people will perceive you as an owner. And then maybe we as Asian Americans can finally overcome what I consider to be the bamboo ceiling, which is we're good worker bees, but we don't, we're not perceived as leaders. So to me, what's required to be perceived as leaders is that every time you talk, you're, you're behaving like an owner. You say, here's how I would change this. Here's how I would do this better. And here are my ideas. And I think so many of us, whether it's cultural or just personality, are conditioned to listen, to respect our elders, to just um, go with the flow and not be the squeaky wheel. But the reality is that you, if you don't have your own idea and it's not different, then you can't lead and no one will follow. If you're just doing the thing that everyone else all did, you're not a leader at all. You're following, right? So I do think that everyone has it in them to be a leader, but I think that there's unique challenges to being Asian American and becoming perceived as a leader and acting like a leader. And what I want to say is, Ashley, that you've always walked in like a leader, and I really appreciate that about you. So I wish you all the best, and thank you for having me. Well, thank you, Jennifer, for making that comment, especially coming from you, you know, the race horse. (laughs) And, (laughs) And, I mean, the struggle is real, and I am learning, and there have been so many people along the way that helped me with that. I really do appreciate your being here and being present here. Thank you so much, Ashley.